and welcome to episode 160 of the 1099 for the week of August 6th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the video producer for Game Informer, host of the Game Informer Show podcast, and one of the key creative forces behind Replay, Ben Hansen. Ben, how are you doing today? Oh my gosh, thank you for that introduction. Very well. How are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing great. I was telling you off air before about how far I go in a certain research on LinkedIn, or if I find someone who has like a Wikipedia page, you're not going to be able to stop me at that point. I go way too far <laughs> into that background. So intros are a real important aspect of this for me. And uh, just off the bat, I've had a couple of Game Informer people on here before. Um, I, I've had you know Brian Che. I've had Serial Vasquez. A lot of the newer people, actually. Yeah. And one thing I've always noticed about GI is that a lot of the people who get there stay there for a long period of time you've been there for eight years i know a lot of the people not to make any of them feel old but i've been reading since i was in like junior high or high school or something like that totally. so gi seems unique in that editors often stay longer than what you'd maybe expect at a regular ign GameSpot, polygon anything like that do you have any inkling or any idea why that is why once people get there they kind of grow with the site yeah, legally, we aren't allowed to leave. It's in the contract, actually. You have to die with the magazine out here oh, in Minnesota. Oh, man. You're the first person to ever like, actually say that out loud. Maybe there's something in that contract, too, where you're not allowed to talk about it, and we just got you in trouble. F it. I'm here to give the scoop for you, man. Let's just dish it all. No, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, we're out in Minnesota, for Christ's sake. Uh, and so people move out here, or they've just grown up here. I mean, certainly back in the day with Game Informer, it was largely Minnesota-focused, and I feel like Man, from the editors now, most are probably from out of state, um, but it's just it's a lovely place. I grew up in Minnesota. I just love it. And so I think people are just used to like there's not really uh, you're not going out to lunch with IGN folks and they're trying to lure you over to their side of the fence. You know, like it's not like that San Francisco culture. It's kind of like, well, you're out here. If you want to stay in games, there's uh, there's monster games over there in Northfield, Minnesota. And that's about all we got. It's almost the ESPN Bristol mentality where they're not in LA or anything like that. They're in the smaller section of like, hey, you move here and you kind of just stay here. You're not going to, like you said, get poached by other places. This is the spot. And if you like the area, it makes a lot of sense. Totally. And like, and you mentioned, you know, uh, people like those names have been around since your childhood, if you've been reading Game Informer. And that's always those haymakers that I always forget about. But like when people talk about loving the magazine literally they say i grew up reading every one of andrew reiner's reviews like there is a deep commitment to that magazine that's always amazing to hear about and it's so much fun like it comes through just in shocking little ways which i always feel like is so exciting and i hope we convey it to the outside world a fair amount but a recent example that i'm just in love with was when the super nintendo uh like mini came out why am i blanking on that name classic uh, mini? classic mini I, yeah. I, I, classic was the first thing that came to my head the new, good new one. Um, when that thing came out, uh, and like one of the games in the bundle obviously was Star Fox 2. And then we literally were sitting around in a group and we're talking about like, oh, should we review Star Fox 2? Like, what do you do with Star Fox 2? And then there was an honest discussion about, oh, yeah, well, I think Andrew Reiner reviewed Star Fox 1 for the magazine. It'd be kind of cool to Man. have him review Star Fox 2. And it's like, what the hell? Who out, like What other so outlet nice. has that opportunity of like, oh, yeah, the guy's still here. <laughs> He's still reviewing games, ready to go. Well, that's one of the crazier parts and a huge benefit for Game Informer because I freelanced at IGN and GameSpot for the longest time and no one ever had any idea who was reviewing those games. They immediately in the comments said like, oh, GameSpot hates Sony or IGN hates Microsoft because they right. don't, they can't separate the person 
from the outlet at large. And for you guys, it's it's almost approaching the the giant bomb waypoint sort of model where people find specific editors they like and they stick with them. They are able to more closely match their likes in terms of genre, in terms of gameplay style with what this editor is like. So, if, I mean, for you, do you think that's a big advantage you guys have that you can kind of help people nail down which editor shares their interests and then they'll stick with you longer term than just a regular website? God, I hope so. I mean, that's always the the ideal case and that's how you would like to see it. I mean, but as somebody who has TweetDeck open all day with just Game Reformer as the search, I don't think people are as inclined <laughs> to understand the you know intricacies of who's reviewing what game as you might think. But yeah, definitely. I think like the Game Reformer show, the podcast helps get those distinct personalities out there. Well, let's say, oh, it's a JRPG. I'd imagine Kim or Joe are going to have some deep thoughts on that. I look forward to figuring out what they think about this game in particular. Um, so I would certainly hope so. And the more we can kind of make that clear, but it's always difficult outside of just spending a lot of time with the game former community i don't know do you have any thoughts on how you better convey that like the easy solution is all right we're gonna make a little three minute youtube video where it's gonna be hey here's kimberly wallace and here's the games yeah. she likes and here's her favorites follow her reviews if you want like there's no i wish there was a more boilerplate boilerplate like one-stop shop for learning those types of things other than just hey, you know hang out in the community soak in the content get a feel for it Oddly, I feel like it almost has to be through video or podcast because I don't think at this point, uh, I think readers are not programmed to look at who wrote the piece before they start digging in. First off, they're going to scroll all the way to the bottom and they're going to see what the score is. 100%. Then they're going to read the last paragraph. And then if they're angry enough, they'll probably start reading certain points so they can angrily tweet about it. Or let's go positive for a second, which I normally don't do. If they really love the fact that this person loved the game, they'll read the entire thing and be like, oh, I agree with this, I agree with that, even though the game's not out yet and I haven't played it, but I assume I'm going to agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have the, um, if you're going back to the giant bomb example, when you have those quick looks where you start getting to really understand the personality of those people or any of the live shows where they're seen on camera, suddenly you start getting invested in that person above that site. And then you might actually follow it forward and and do the whole like, okay, cool. I now know I like Brad Shoemaker's opinions or going to Waypoint. I, I like Austin Walker on podcasts. I'm going to seek out his stuff. And, you know, even though Twitter can be a tire fire, I think that you subscribe to these certain feeds and see all of these people's opinions and then you they will post their links to their reviews. And then instead of just visiting the Game Informer uh, homepage, they'll be following Ben Hansen and Ben Hansen posts this thing about, hey, here's a video I did or a review I wrote or a review that I like and they'll follow that. So maybe having these social channels allows you to kind of stand out and get people more invested in the person rather than the site. Right, and my favorite type of tweet if I ever see a tweet from any outlet from anybody, because I love following game stuff as well, uh, anything where somebody tweets out and says, hey, like, I'm really proud of this, I will yeah. immediately click through that link. Like, even if it's a topic I'm not even that interested in, you know, just having that little extra layer of context, I'm just right there. And I feel like that's the, the best case scenario, just talking about gravitating towards personalities uh, for any site, uh, is something that happens a lot for me with Giant Bomb. I'm a big fan of Giant Bomb. I know you are as well. I really enjoyed your interviews with basically everybody at Giant Bomb. I think maybe the janitor at this point, but it's all great. It's, it's, it's all close. Great. I'm trying. The janitor's <laughs> actually one of the harder gets, but I'm still working on it. I understand. It's a messy place. And so, no, just like, you know, when you're hearing about a new game on the horizon, you're playing some new game, and then you find yourself thinking, like, I wonder what Gersman thinks about this thing. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the next episode of the Bombcast because I really want to know. 
I'm still frustrated that I don't know what he thinks about like Harmonix's amplitude the, <laughs> on PS4. It's like I never really had a concrete take, and that's kind of in his wheelhouse. Wheelhouse, and I'd love to know those specific things. So when you're daydreaming about what other people think in the games media, that's how you know you got somebody hooked. Yeah, that that might mean you're too deep. Which, if it helps, I'm in the exact same point, like part as you. So I'm not judging you on that. I do love that idea of when you see someone on Twitter say, "Hey, this is something I'm genuinely." proud of because let's be honest about people who are creative they usually hate everything they do Uh, (laughs) it's usually like oh this is trash this is trash this is trash and then it finally comes out and it's like okay this is just trash like just not trash enough that i can actually release it to the public and not hate it and there's there's also the opposite there's every once in a while you see the person who every new thing they write is the greatest thing and then maybe when they say i'm proud of this it doesn't carry as much weight but when you see someone who you know is very self-critical and very they take time on what they do because they want to get it right those are the people when they say hey this is something that i'm really really proud of that's the stuff i gravitate to and that is again the value of twitter where you wouldn't really get that otherwise you'd see an article like oh that's really cool but when someone who you respect is like hey this is one of the good things i've written this year that i think is important to send out into the world and that's when you start following that Absolutely. And I don't know how you convey that better better other than to say and just broadcast when you're proud of something. I feel like every every tweet where you share some of your content, you should have like a scale, a personal scale of one to ten of how proud you are of that, because there's definitely situations and it's so surreal. I, I'm very sensitive in a workplace situation when it comes to I don't like we'll record a podcast, record an episode of the Game Former show and I'll just be sitting there editing it and thinking like, you know, this is about a this is about a four out of ten episode. Or yeah. some I'm like, this is a nine out of ten. This is almost as good as you can get here. And I just have this crazy range and then I always forget for listeners or viewers of the Game Informer show, it's like, ah, you know, it's usually in that north of seven camp. Like there isn't as much range, but when you're in the middle of it and you feel every beat and you know the potential of it, it's always the needle can swing so much in in a much bigger direction, you know? Have you read a podcast where you felt like maybe it didn't tank, but it just wasn't going well most of the time? And then when you edit it back, you're like, actually, this is one of the better ones. I just, like, I was zoning. I've definitely had podcast interviews that I've done that during the show, I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm asking the right questions or I don't really know if I'm listening enough to what this person's saying. But then you go back and you're like, all right, as long as I edit out a couple of the, like, completely ridiculous things I've said, I'll sound like it won't be too bad. But have you had one that's just is way better upon, like, second listen or even third edit? 100%. I mean, I don't know if it goes from, you know, a a three to a 10, but it happens all the time where like, I'll think, oh, this segment didn't go well, or that part of the interview was kind of uncomfortable. I don't know what the hell that was. And then you watch it and it's like, everything's fine. You're just watching a video. (laughs) No one, like, I'd be amazed if any listeners or viewers are so focused that they're feeling every emotional twist and turn of every sentence like I am, I feel like when I'm hosting it. God, I hope Uh, not. Yeah, I certainly hope not. Um, so absolutely, it's always better than you think. And every once in a while, we'll record a segment and an editor will be like, I don't feel like I did a good job there. To the point, like we've had it a couple times where somebody will say, could we redo that? I really don't think it was good. And I just have to convince them, like, I thought it was great. I didn't notice a thing. I'll even like send them an audio clip that they're worried about just so they can double check it. And they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah I don't know what I was talking about. Like, it's totally fine. You just feel so much because you're just up in your head while you know, hosting the podcast or recording a podcast. You don't actually think about the words that are coming out of your mouth. Usually it's fine. That's that self-critical part coming out where you start, like, again, you're looking at this segment, you're like, I think I completely messed that up. And everyone around you is just saying like, no, that's, 
honestly really good maybe one of your better ones like yeah. maybe you should in your head mess up more because it might actually turn out being the best ones and you're talking before about promoting certain things on social media and that being a really helpful way to maybe find reviews or find videos or podcasts that you like but you as someone who helps make content and you work with a lot of people who help make content is there ever a balance in your head between how much should i promote and how much should i just use twitter as a here's my lunch service or here's what i'm doing today service because oh, i man. know with this show there's every once in a while where i'm like am i promoting too much is that going to be annoying and turn things away but then there's other times where people are like oh i completely missed this show you should talk about it more like i, I missed this episode with your game informer work is there a balance in your head of how much should i promote versus how much will i start sounding like i'm just this uh twitter bot that only posts links to game informer content I do worry about it. Like every once in a while, uh, I've kind of been scaling back on Twitter over the last couple of years. And every once in a while, when I look back through my feed, because I haven't really scaled back that much, I still look back on my feed like a crazy person. And I realize, oh, I've just been sharing Game Informer links saying like, here's a good thing from Surreal Vasquez or hey, <laughs> check out the new episode of the Game Informer show or subscribe. We have more Destiny content coming up, you know, stuff like that. Where it's like, oh, boy, I need to get a little more human in here. Like if it's a full week of only sharing Game Informer links, I'm probably not being as efficient or as effective as I could be on social media. So yeah, I do worry about it. Um, and I don't know, have you ever like made commitments to yourself of, I'm going to try and just write some more jokes on social yep. media or like try and come up with little missions along the way for yourself? I, I've 1000% done that, which usually leads you down the road of, uh oh, maybe I'm not as funny as I thought I was. And some of your <laughs> jokes are just coming out completely flat. And you're like, oh, God, maybe I should go back to the really easy promotional stuff and attach a gift to it. Like, yeah. that's really the best way to do that. I've, I've had certain, I'm not going to look at Twitter for a certain amount of time goals. I've had certain, I'm going to stop talking about this aspect. Or it, there's the weird back and forth guilt between like, I, sometimes you want to talk more about politics because it's insane in the world right now. And other times you're like, I need some sort of mental break from all of that kind of stuff. But it's so hard to keep to any of that because it, it, life goes fast like Twitter goes fast where it, suddenly two hours later you're like, well, I'm dropping that because I need to talk about this thing now, which is, totally. again, the good and the bad of it. Yeah, for sure. And it's I, uh, I came up with an old rule for myself of I want every tweet to convey some sort of information. Like, hey, here's a link to a thing that I think is good that might benefit your life in some way. But instead of just shooting out narcissistic nothings into the world, that was my thing. Is there has to be a kernel of a takeaway of something for somebody in there. Um, but I've even scaled it back further where now I just realize, like, I just don't want to put negativity out there. If, yeah. you know, I see a, a much anticipated movie and it's underwhelming, like, I just, why send that tweet? You know, what, what, what's really the point here? If I love something, I'm happy to put it out there. But, uh, you know, I guess I recently broke it because I've kind of been up and down on Dragon Ball Super, which is something I'm stupid into, right? It's like I'm I found an aggressive Dragon Ball Z fan, so we should just talk about this the rest of the podcast. <laughs> oh, this is so much easier, right? But I was just like, I was, I've been wanting to tweet for a while, just complaining about the Zamasu storyline. I'm on the English dub uh, time frame, just for a frame of reference here. It's like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm so annoyed by that. And finally it wrapped up, thank Christ. But it went on for what felt like longer than the Boo Saga. And I just wanted to vent about it on Twitter. It was like, yeah, you know what? There's no, there's no point. Let me just talk about the episodes that I like. Like that crazy Dr. Slump crossover. That was the best shit they've done in a long time. Or the so fact that suddenly Brawly is canon. Like, what is it? So my <laughs> right. main concern with the Brawly movie was like, oh, God, are they bringing back the green giant, weird, insane Brawly from the third Brawly movie? But instead, they're like, we're just going to take a mulligan on Brawly. 
and <laughs> we're going to make him like essentially the same story, but now everyone's way more powerful, and now he's actually a part of everything. Dragon Ball Super is weird. I'm such a big Dragon Ball Z fan, and I I would think I would be way more into it, but there's a, there's a certain... You know when... This is going to be the weirdest comparison I make. You know in clicker games like Cookie Clicker where it starts out with like one, two, three, and then you go higher scale where every time you click it's five, every time you click it's ten. Naturally, yeah. And then the scale gets so weird that you can't keep track of anything and nothing really means anything anymore. That is Dragon Ball Super when it comes to power levels and transformations. Where Now we're in the late game Cookie Clicker stages where suddenly... It's like, why is your hair red? Why is your hair blue? Why shouldn't Trunks not be that strong compared to you? Because he's kind of just still future Trunks, which is like Super Saiyan 2, technically. Why is he way stronger? And my brain starts melting as I start watching it. But then they come in with a haymaker of a comedy episode and remind you that, like, hey, don't take this crap too seriously. Because you do start to, like, lionize the past a little bit too much, thinking about Dragon Ball Z in general. And it's like, yeah, it's silly, it's absurd, but... It feels like what I love about Dragon Ball is there are rules to the universe and it seems to play by these set rules. And it's just so much fun to have clear clear rules in the universe and then an ongoing saga that lasts for so many years. Yeah. And with Super, I just felt like I had to let a lot of that go and just realize it's a comedy show. It's fine. I think the humor is on point. It's just incredible. Uh, but in terms of the drama, I'm never really going to care. I care more about when they get a ring out in that first world tournament. I'm sorry, universal oh, yeah. tournament. Like that was a fun rule set again compared to Zamasu. It's like, oh, good Christ. Yeah, I just that don't care like what you think about mortals, dude. Bizarre retread of just who's going to be more powerful in a way that's not as interesting without this additional rule set. Before we yeah. move on from Dragon Ball Z, which again, this could be a whole podcast. Uh, stack rank the Dragon Ball Z saga. So we got Saiyan, we got Frieza, we got Cell slash Androids, we got Boo. Mm, what's what's man. the best? Okay. This is sad, but I did a lot of mooching off my friends mm-hmm. and watching a lot of Dragon Ball Z at their place, like, you know, for weeks on end to be like, I can't go home because I need to watch all of the Android saga over <laughs> at my friend Ronnie's place. Um, and so when I finally got cable at my parents' place, it was right when the Boo saga started. And I since, you know, went back and watched it all, but uh, like before that, but I have a sweet spot in my heart for like the dumb Saiyan era and oh, going into the man. Boo saga. And I know it's long and it's ridiculous, but because that was the first time I was able to like consume it in my own home, I love the Boo saga. I love Mystic Gohan. I love all that stuff. That that hurts. I I, I okay. know. I know I it's silly. I know it's Ball unpopular. It's it's definitely unpopular. I'm not gonna say it's wrong, but it's approaching objectively wrong. It's the Boo saga was it's a sort of silly that took me a while to warm up to. I still think it's good, but for me, it's. It's Cell slash Android Saga, then it's Frieza, right. then it's Saiyan, then Boo at the bottom. But Totally. Look, that's the very logical choice. I will never yes. argue that you're incorrect. But in terms of like the ones that I find the most nostalgia in, it's that. And I know it's silly and I, I, I shouldn't support it that way. But I, I do think like – okay, even before you know Boo really takes off and really starts dragging out, I think the best fight in all of Dragon Ball Z is the Goku, Goku versus Vegeta Goku in the Boo Saga. is good. It's, it's really yeah. good. The Majin Vegeta shot alone where he just blows up the stands and then gives Goku that look and then yeah. transitioning to that fight. Like that fight I think has the best choreography and just animation in the series in terms of the fight aspects. I just – I rewatched it recently and it's just incredible. Like those slow motion shots where they're just like launching themselves off the ground with these little subtle moves and just focusing on every detail of their limbs. Just the best. 
I think I, it took me so long to warm up to the idea of a villain like Boo, who's just that ridiculous and childlike, that at the right. start I was already like, I'm so out. But then now <laughs> that I watch it again, I'm starting to get better. But I also understand having nostalgia for something that might not be the best, but it doesn't matter because you have nostalgia. Like, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 might be the best Metal Gear Solid game. Or let me rephrase that. I think it might be my favorite because it's the first one I played. So oh. that's when the magic moment happened to me where I'm like, oh, this is not just a regular stealth game. This is a batshit crazy anime drama that also has stealth in it and that's why there's this really large place in my heart and like final fantasy 8 i've talked too much about how i think that's the best final fantasy but it's because it was just played at this certain time in my life where it means more and there's i think a lot of games like that in series where you play them maybe at the most influential stage of your life and i think a lot of that is if you start playing games around like between like 8 and 13 those are the ones that always will stick with me somehow the strongest. As you get into high school, you still love games, but these very developmental stages of your life, when you find a game that connects with you, it becomes almost a part of your upbringing. So it, let's say if someone's talking shit on it, like if someone's like, I hate Banjo-Kazooie, I'm like, you're wrong and you're saying you hate me because <laughs> that was right. a big part of my life at that time and i would assume that's why the boo saga is up there <laughs> it could be yeah it's interesting i was just thinking about uh music and being nostalgic over music a lot this weekend and you're right that 8 to 13 window for games and then if you're like for music it's 16 to 18 year, yes. years old is where i'm locked in it's weird how different mediums have like their timestamp era in your personal life i don't know uh what else there is i was really into NPR at age nine so nostalgic for that era like I don't know if every medium has it but certainly games and music well I wish that you're someone who's been you know on a site for a long time you've read comments you understand how this stuff works and when I was talking before about how people start associating that stuff with their personality or their upbringing I wish more people would kind of recognize that before lashing out because if you let's say review a game poorly on GameSpot that has some sort of it's some sort of series that someone loves or on a console that people love they do immediately lash out because because of those memories and it'd be nice just to be like it's sometimes you have to take a step back and realize why something maybe it's not the greatest thing but it means something to you and it's okay if people don't have that sort of emotional connection with I the game it, with a like, certain I... type of medium totally it can be frustrating and i'm i'm the kind of weirdo that dives too deep into comments like i read every youtube comment ever posted you, on game Informer. how you saint it's so much fun though like i it's <laughs> it's soul crushing especially during pride month but it's just soul crushing in general yeah. but when i've built that channel up from nothing like it's so awesome to see like oh someone commented on this video from six and a half years ago that i was really proud of and they appreciate it and so those little nuggets make up for just an avalanche of, of garbage in there. But I totally understand it because, you know, growing up, I was a big GameSpot fan. Uh, and to the point that I remember this was like, you know, I was graduating high school around this era. But I remember when uh, Greg Kasavin reviewed Final Fantasy XII, he yeah. gave it a 9. And before I'd even played the game, I was like, that's outrageously low. I think Kabitsu <laughs> gave it like a 40. That's offensive. And I like wrote him an email. I don't think I was a full-on dick, but I was like, you know, you know, like that internet... Partial dick. 60% dick type of tone. Yeah. And I sent him one of those emails of like, I don't know, this 9.0, I think you're not doing it. It's service. I hear it's really great. I think think you messed up in your review. All this nonsense. And now the, the... 
joyous part of being in the games industry is I get to apologize to Greg's face and say, yeah, I sent you this email a long time ago. So I want you to know that I was a complete asshat. You're welcome to give Final Fantasy XII a 9, which is a, yeah. a great score for that game in retrospect. It, it, unfortunately, I relate to this too much because you, you have the moment where you're that email or commenter where you actually, if you love a series, you care about its Metacritic, which is dumb. Like, yeah. in retrospect, and if you separate yourself from it, who cares, like, what this one reviewer says about the game you like? It's okay for those diverse opinions. And I feel like at this point, this podcast, I've had a billion people on it, talked about a billion times, that I think it's important to have this diverse set of reviews because you want those different opinions out there. You don't want the cookie-cutter response to everything. But... I totally left comments on reviews when I was younger for games that I loved where I'm like, this got an eight and a half. It obviously deserved a nine. And if you're at a point in your life where you're sitting in front of your computer and you're talking about half a point on a review scale for a site and you're yelling at a writer who you've never met before, you need to take a step back. And I, I thankfully, it sounds like both of us have grown up out of that, but well, maybe yeah, mostly. I'd, I'd like to say yes, but you have no idea how much conversation there always is in the game former office of like i don't review games uh, i've yeah. never reviewed a game i don't want to i'm happy just to talk about them <laughs> and not have to really comb through every single feature and detail on those things but um but like there's so many discussions that are always fun to hear in the office where joe juba or reviews editor will come back and be like hey i read your text this is sounded more like a 775 and the reviewer will be like i'm feeling like it's an 8.25 and then it'll be an hour-long argument about those little details so i totally hear it and understand it when the community also wants to argue about the 0.25 and the scale and what it's ultimately worth and how the text reads and there's a ton of debate of that internally and it's still fascinating to hear in your workplace it's so crazy too because like what really is the difference between like a 7.75 and an 8.25 in terms of quality like not too much but the actual perception of that when someone sees it, because one says seven, one says eight, is so vastly different. 100%. It's huge. And it's weird when you start playing those numbers, because I believe that review scores are totally fine. I value them as someone who maybe you don't have a lot of time, you don't want to read a full review. You're like, I want this game. The embargo lifts. This game gets an eight. Cool. I at least know that it's it's good enough. There's not crazy bugs. It's not going to be broken right away. Now I'm going to go buy it. And I think review scores serve that purpose for people who don't want to dig into criticism. But once you start thinking about what they actually mean and what the difference between an 8.5 and a 9 is, there really isn't that much. And people see them and interpret them so differently because a lot of times you get the people who say, Everything starts at a 10 and every flaw docks at a certain amount, which is not how my brain works right. when I'm reviewing a thing. So how it's actually communicated can get super complex. So I understand the side of we don't need review scores. Let's just talk about games. But then I, I still really like them. I still I enjoy them, embargo days. Totally. I love them. And I love the fact that my brain has baked in like old review scores from GameSpot. Or sometimes <laughs> I feel like just because editors are cranking out so many reviews, but I sometimes I feel like I remember our review scores better than the writers who wrote the reviews. Yeah. I really enjoy that aspect. I love just having that concrete number locked down for a game moving through all time, you know? It's so crazy. I used to be able to just like have friends go into like a game, uh, GameStop with them and point at a game and be like, that Metacritic is an 83, that mm -hmm. one's a 78, that one's a 64. And like the fact that I ever had that information makes me feel like I probably could have had a better use for my brain real estate but that's 
how hey, follow that your passion just i just follow your passion man you got it You're what exactly a stupid where you passion for me i don't know that one's pretty dumb like yeah maybe second I thought, don't follow your passion mode. yeah in that case maybe don't follow your dreams and your passions because you're wasting time <laughs> in that way you did mention before that you kind of built the game informer youtube channel from the ground up and when i you know first started reading game informer of course i just saw it as here's my monthly magazine that i'm really looking forward to Every time it comes in, I'm going to bring it to class so I can read it and not pay attention to anything that's actually going on. And now it has this very strong online presence and it goes into different aspects of media. Your educational background is in cinema, media culture, comparative literature. And a lot of that stuff you could see growing into someone working at a YouTube channel, but I doubt that's what you initially had planned when you graduated back then. Is this something where you always had interest in video and creating video and then this opportunity came later? Did you always want to get into games? Well, I was pretty desperate and confused for a long time, but basically it was, uh, you know, I loved, I've always loved video. I always loved making dumb short movies with my friends in middle school and high school. That's just the most fun a human being can have in my mind. <laughs> it's just better than sex. Just It's just the best. <laughs> And so then, like that's a back of the box quote for something. (laughs) So then, going into college, yeah, it was a more media studies approach, but I was always building up that like more practical filmmaking side, and uh, through internships at different production houses around Minneapolis and stuff like that. Um, But I was planning on. I always loved games, and I loved games coverage. Like One Up was huge for me. Uh, Completely changed my life i think for making it more cemented down in my mind like i'd like to do something with games because the way they fell in love with the industry and just conveyed their love for the game industry both through one of yours it's just everything they've did over there it just it's like this seems like a good place to be and so my plan was i wanted to make educational software i wanted to produce educational software um that was the long-term goal uh, but then once graduating college, uh, I started working at uh, a TV station, like a local TV station here in Minneapolis. Um, and then that transitioned to just a crazy opening at Game Informer. And I said, yeah, that's about right. That sounds like a place that I might <laughs> be able to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was uh, November of 2010 when I started there then. And it was, it was super fun just to like walk in. And it's rare, I feel like, to walk into a workplace just nervous as hell, obviously, but just realizing that, oh, I can help in some very tangible ways here. Yeah. Just simple stuff like I was the first video person there. And so it's like, oh, here's how we can change this workflow. And whoever ran this camera last for an interview, like the settings are just all over the place. Was like, it Dan Reichert? Uh, it, it rotated through. Dan did a lot of early video for us. Yeah. But even worse, I think, for editors is I think they used to like rotate through where it's like, all right, Dragon Age 2 cover story trip uh tim turry who's at capcom now but it's like tim turry you can run the camera on this one and so it's just like this rotating lightning bolt of anxiety for editors of like i don't know uh, just scrambling through the instruction manual of like how do i make sure this records how do i not blow it with audio yeah um so it was just amazing to walk in and be like oh i can do this i know how to do this stuff i think we can i can rest at ease knowing that i'm actually having a tangible impact and i feel like a miracle worker when i can crank out a video <laughs> tour of bethesda you know it was like, yeah, they're like the... what magic is this how did yeah. you actually make a video happen that it was you know a... has cuts and exciting music what's going on totally like it was amazing where early on the first cover story i went on was the skyrim cover story trip uh and like i remember producing that tour of bethesda game studios 
and uh, my boss Andrew Reiner was very sweet, and he's like, "This is the greatest video we've ever done. This is the greatest video we've ever." Oh, that has to feel great. It, it was amazing, and like personally, it's like, oh, I'd give it about a six point five out of ten. But <laughs> great that like this is the bar we're working with here. This is going to be great. What sort of tools did you know coming in? What have you learned since? Because so many people, whenever I bring someone who does video on, whether it be for a site like yours or YouTube or anything like that, they're kind of the where do I start and what's actually valuable to learn? What should I invest in right now? So what do you feel like got you the job and what have you started investing in more as you've gotten further in the job? Interesting. Um, well, since high school, I was a Final Cut man. Uh, mm. Like Final Cut 7 in particular, it was just my jam. That was my career. That was everything I knew. Um, and I used it for way too long at Game Informer. I probably transitioned to Premiere in like 20... 14 2015 to the point where final cut 7 was just like it i could no longer run it on current mac operating systems and yeah. stuff so uh, premiere you know it's a little clunky it has its hiccups but it's it's pretty good and the subscription for it god is it like 20 bucks a month i think oh geez um, I, it's it still seems like a lot uh but i'm sure there's trials out there and stuff and in terms of just a good practical workhorse uh, editing software, it's it's a good place to start. But uh, if you don't want to pay for that, I mean, there's always just there's some cheap workarounds, no matter where you're looking. And just I'm still amazed that we're recording this in Audacity, which is free. We use OBS at Game Informer, which is free. I mean, the oh, yeah. Elgato hardware is so cheap. Like, there's really no excuse not to dive in and start tinkering around with you know game media. Especially when you're just at the stage of how do I get started that's when you can use stuff like for audio audacity or use these tools that might be cheap one-time purchases or you know what there's friends out there who are like hey i have i'm not using this certain software let's legally let you use this or something like that once you start really digging into it and you might be a video producer a game informer or GameSpot, or something like that one they'll probably give you the software you need but two if you do want to get more serious about it once you have those initial tools then you might feel like it's worth investing i, I think there's sort of a uh, there's like certain steps you can take and the investment at the start doesn't have to be major. It doesn't have to be this major thing that you're putting hundreds of dollars in every single year. But I'll tell you what you do. I didn't realize how much software is in general right now for um, my game development job. I'm I'm going to each person and be like, hey, what sort of um, software do you use? What licenses do you have monthly? And some of the stuff that's out there for animation um, and the super, super high-level Adobe packages, you're like, how could anyone who's not in a big company afford this stuff? It gets crazy. Oh, yeah, for sure. I always like to beat the drum because I, I came from community TV of just look up where your local community television station is if you're interested in video. And there are people there that would be more than welcome to, more than happy to, to show you in and teach you a couple things. And they have computers there with Premiere, I'm sure, set up, ready to go. Like you could learn so much just by going and knocking on a door there and saying, hey, how do you run a camera? What can you teach me? I'm sure most have classes that they'd be more than happy to walk you through that stuff. Yeah, there's definitely people who, there's of course a competitive nature to an industry that has so few full-time jobs. But I would like to think from my experience, and I'm guessing you've experienced too, people are willing to help. People are willing yeah. to say like, hey, here's how I did this or here's at least a way you can get started and really start getting into this. Here's the best way to get experience. I mean, we talked before about when you first got into Game Informer. Again, it was not about video, podcast, anything like that. But 
now that you've gotten into it there's replay there's the game informer show there's a lot of different ways that people especially you know the editors are talking to the audience in ways that they didn't before it was all no cameras no anything like that since you first started was it difficult at all maybe not just for you but for the people who you've worked with to sort of open up and show a bit of their personalities because when you get an associate editor job at game informer back then you don't expect to have this other aspect of also you need to make funny dick jokes while you're playing the game on replay or you need to kind of think on your feet in a podcast and be able to have these conversations without the the luxury of editing out what you're going to say because some of that stuff just happens sometimes you guys do live streams so has that been interesting to watch these people who are traditional writers get more into this multimedia aspect of games yeah it's fascinating um just to be clear though like i started after replay and even the Game Informer show, like the, the audio-only version had started. So I wasn't involved in like the creation of either of those for sure. But uh, yeah, I think everyone breathed a sigh of relief when I got in to kind of like help Shepard replay a little bit more or just tech-wise to like focus some things. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been a, a fascinating evolution. And I think it's interesting just, um, you know, if writers are on mic early on especially – um, and maybe even if they're not a big fan of other games media, where I feel like that's a, a big leg up is just to know what you're interested in watching. Um, but I think there's a, a tendency to say, oh, this is the part where I kind of like run down some features. This is the part in the preview where I talk about the controls and like just having the audio version of that, it doesn't really flow well. Nope. And so just trying to convey that, you know, you know, it's, it's always in the early days, especially it was a lot of conversations about okay, uh, I can set these cameras up and we can shoot this huge elaborate preview for Lost Planet 3, but I just need to know if you guys are excited about talking about it. And it's a lot of like, yeah, we could talk about it. Okay. <laughs> are you going to come in with like some huge just avalanche of passion? Because that's what I'm looking for here. It's like, oh yeah, we'll do something. you know. And so just trying to like map out like what you technically could do versus like I'm dying to talk about this new Wii game and I have to get it off my chest and I want to convey that on video. That's always an interesting dividing line between what's maybe worth doing and what's share worth sharing with the community. Yeah. Some of that extends to writing as well, where if a game is a, a three or four out of 10, you're just dying to write that review to be like, totally. here's why this game sucks. And same yeah. way, if it's a nine out of 10, you're like, here's why this game is extremely important and you should play it. But if you're writing that six, six and a half out of 10 review, those are the hardest ones I ever wrote in my life because you just you end up coming to the same conclusion of this is fine. Like this is functional. This works in some ways. I wish it took more risks or here's this one cool part that doesn't really see it all the way through. And the same that is way more apparent in video where you're just again, not to keep using giant bomb, but if you have a 45 minute quick look on a six out of 10 game or in their case, a three out of five game, you're just like. Do I really want to invest 40 minutes of my time listening to someone totally. say this is okay? That's not their fault. That's kind of the nature of it. So the hope is you can at least latch on to certain aspects that maybe do try something new. Like with a vampire, vampire, vampire. It's one of those. I've been calling it vampire. And <laughs> no, no one, one on planet me. Earth knows. Don't worry. It's a I feel like the devs have not even said. They're like, we're just going to let this debate keep going. But that's Aren't a game we that... mysterious? Oh. <laughs> that's the game that I feel like I would probably give like a six and a half or a seven two, but it tries so many interesting things that really fascinate me that I would love writing that review because there's things that are different. There's like, Oh my, you can just eat and you can just suck off some, I'm leaving that in. You can just suck off some NPCs in this game for experience. 
This is and, turning into all systems Goku very quickly, but yeah, way. that's yeah, that was unintentional. <laughs> uh, and get experience out of these people who are quest givers, or at least these massive dialogue trees, and remove them from the game. And that's super interesting in a dialogue heavy game. And sometimes the combat is not as exciting. And I wouldn't love to talk about that aspect, but you need it's fun to have those games that at least reach for something that might not go all the way, but you can at least be like, here's this thing that other games should try and perfect later here's the kernel right. you should care about yes for sure and it's it's to, you're totally right on video saying something is fine is such a bummer but when you know the game's scoring like a seven out of ten and it's like hey let's get on the podcast to talk about it and you know you try and have a little coaching session not coaching because that's derogatory or something or, or demeaning yeah. but you just have some conversation about like hey what are we going to talk about like what's interesting about this game that we can really hinge a conversation around and if the person's like ah it's just fine in general i don't know it's yeah. just it's tricky because then it's like well is there some aspect like does the music suck does is the music fun is there some fun conversation we could ring out of this game without making you feel disingenuous i don't i don't want you know a wrestling character getting behind the <laughs> mic and talking about oh dui in this game's garbage or something you know it, it's yeah. so tough to find that line between trying to make it entertaining to talk about when it's just a fine experience that's uh one of my favorite parts about how reviews have kind of evolved over time is we very much had the here's the boilerplate paragraph where you need to talk about the story here's the next one where you need to talk about the combat here's the one where you absolutely need to talk about the graphics and right. do a math equation that's the review at the end and i was very fortunate to write for kevin van ord who didn't need that and would just say what mattered to you about this what was important about this game what stood out what's going to stick with you what's what do you wish wouldn't stick with you but it totally will because it's trash and like that's the the same thing that you're talking about there, where you don't have to talk about every aspect of a game in a review or in coverage. You just need to talk about the stuff that really matters. If the music is just like, oh, I barely noticed it, then you don't need to write 200 words about right. how you barely noticed this eh, music. And I, I think that's something that luckily we've able we've been able to kind of evolve and be like, okay. You, people have seen so much video of these games before they come out. You don't need to describe every single pixel or how it exactly plays or 100%. every sequence. It's, it's yes. out there. And that yeah. has to be interesting for like for Game Informer, too. When the earlier days, I would just stare at these screenshots of the magnifying glass and be like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. I'm so excited to actually see what this thing looks like in motion. But now there's hundreds of hours of good footage oh, yeah. it feels like before a and, game comes out and it happens all the time where maybe in the podcast less so because you have to factor in the audio only listeners but it happened all the time where we'd be shooting like a video preview and the editor would be talking about what the graphics in the game look like and it's yeah. one of those things where like i don't have the heart to tell you that's just hitting the cutting room floor like people are looking at <laughs> b-roll of the game like but that's just that writer tendency again coming through where that's what they've been doing sometimes for 25 years like you can't you can't get that out of somebody's system which is totally fine when you just happen to be shooting a video it takes so long to get that out i've had so many reviews where i'm like this doesn't need to be 2,000 words there's 500 words that someone has probably seen the trailer of this and i don't need to describe this shit to them right like that's it's just the different ways like the industry has changed uh again you are a podcast host and i feel like a lot of people same with the sort of the YouTube channel aspect of the video editing. They want to start their own or they have the questions about, hey, where should I get started? I'm not going to ask you to describe the perfect way to start a podcast, but from your experience doing it for as long as you have, what are some of the underrated qualities that you think a podcast host needs, especially when you're directing and coordinating a conversation between 
three, four, maybe even five people who are in a room. Yeah. Uh, overall, it's focus. Like if you're starting up a new podcast, have some distinct corner. Don't just make it a general, I don't know, me and my buddy who's kind of funny. We talk about games, I guess. You know, have <laughs> some sort. It's so cheesy to say have some sort of an angle, but I'll say it. Have some niche. that you're. There's something that you're capturing there. Something that's an easy one-sentence one summary. And then overall, uh, you know, certain podcasts can pull it off because they're magicians you know I'll, I'll, like giant bomb but hmm. in general overall it's hey get to the point yep listening to podcasts where people will just i don't know if they think they're giant bomb or whatever like listening to people talk about cereal for 15 minutes if you're not giant bomb it's very tough to pull off you know what i mean it depends what kind of cereal you're talking about though <laughs> like if we're talking about like like if you're talking about Raisin Bran, I don't want to hear about that. But if you're going like, oh, I love old school Captain Crunch, I, might, totally right. I might keep going on the podcast. General Mills, don't get me started. Oh, bother. <laughs> I, would, I would listen to at least two episodes of a serial podcast. Oh, not, the, not the serial podcast, but a serial-based <laughs> podcast. Right, right. But yeah, overall, it's like, especially if you're trying to, you have a focus uh, for the podcast. It, this is just personally. I love podcasts. listen to so many podcasts. I always appreciate when people just get to the info, get yeah. to the good takeaways. Like in the last year or so, I've really gotten into Easy Allies. Uh, and I feel like they do such a good job of that, of just they love the game industry and they just dive right in. It's not 20 minutes of how was your week? How's yep. your how's your roommate before talking about games? They just dive <laughs> right into the part that's fascinating. You have to be, like you said, a specific type of podcast group to pull it off if you're not giant bomb if you don't already have this established interest in your life beyond the games then you can't start a podcast and have here's the 20 minute section called how was your weekend like well i went right. to a bar with friends um i had this exact drink we played darts it was great and like no one cares about that but also i think at this point because it is a crowded field you can't really just be new person on the scene who's like here's my podcast that starts with gaming news that moves on to what we're playing that ends totally. with emails or what's coming out and that's it because i think for me the rule of thumb with all content especially in this industry is if you remove yourself from that piece of content would you listen to it like yes. if you just happened upon this would you listen to it if the answer is no then why would anyone else listen to your shit 100 that's it, it's hard because you have to be sometimes very honest with yourself, which no one loves to do. But with podcasting, you need a hook. You need, I think, listen is maybe the best advice than what you said earlier, where especially with an interview show, sometimes you just have a, a list of questions and you're so dead set on asking them that you don't realize that the best conversation that could have happened was the one where you stop looking at your notes and you listen to what that person said and you're asking the follow-up question. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways I've learned through so many years of doing cover story trips and cover story interviews and stuff is just, I feel like the best possible interview, both content-wise and for just clarity for YouTube headline, headline gameformer.com, everything like that is just start with the most interesting question you have and then just dive into that. So start with the biggest thing that you want to know and then just follow up question upon follow up question based yeah. on their answer like just make it this weird upside down pyramid you know instead of just a wide ranging interview where you're dabbling on everything i want focused content i want to know when i'm going through the youtube app on my phone late at night if i tap this video what will i know coming out of it what info can i take away instead of yeah. just 
the past, present, and future of the Metro series. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to fucking tap on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, again, it's like I think it really depends on, I think in a lot of cases with games media, YouTube channels, you do want that just direct info. Like, I'm totally. looking for this thing. Don't let me dig through, like you said, this full story, the, the origin point, why, where this person went to high school to learn why they're making Metro. Like, I want to know what the new aspects of the Metro game are. I think there's some value to... Again, I will use the most popular podcasts I have are the ones with the giant bomb people where we talk about everything because people just want to hear everything about them. Totally. But you have to, it's a pick and choose kind of thing, right? Where sometimes you have, I have full blown conversations about different aspects of media with people who aren't giant bomb, but I think we can have great conversations about that stuff. So it is, it's all a balancing act. And I think the more you'll kind of figure it out once you start going into it, if you're listening to this and you want to do something like that, but yeah, make sure that if you have notes, I always have notes because I'm terrified of just going to a point and being like, "Uh Oh, I have yep. no idea what to talk about. Cause I have a complete brain freeze and you need some sort of reminder, but you also have to remember that your audience doesn't have your notes in front of you. So you might go on this incredible tangent about Dragon Ball Z and you might bring this point where people are like, oh, you need to ask a follow-up to that point. But I'm looking at my notes about how like, ask him the question about underrated qualities for a podcast host. And I completely <laughs> missed this avenue we could have taken. And suddenly yes. we're in this weird zone and we're like, uh-oh, now everyone's confused. And that happens so often with podcasts and it just happens with practice. Oh, absolutely. I, you rarely regret going for a follow-up question and just digging a little bit deeper. Like what happens, I think a lot too, I've seen in interviews is anytime you're nearing a more sensitive topic or a more emotional topic with a game developer, people will ask the one question and be like, well, I asked it, time to move on. But if you just slow the tempo down, and I think a lot of this comes too from uh, being a video editor and just having to hear myself so much in the interviews and then as i'm editing this content throughout the month before we put it up and just realizing like why didn't i ask a follow-up there yep. i didn't know what they made some reference to some topic that i don't know what it was and i didn't ask what they were talking about or they were still vague and i didn't have a concrete answer and i moved on and i just regret it and that kind of like you know just rehearsal and just hearing yourself again and again not take those opportunities it just cements that point home even further of when you're in the room, take advantage of what's in the room. What is that person saying? How can you get more clarity for your audience based on what they're saying? Don't be scared of follow-ups. You can always get back on track. It's always worth taking that flyer on. Yeah. Okay, that part was interesting. He might or he or she might have the, this amazing well of knowledge on this follow-up question, but let's just try. And guess what? You can cut that shit out later. Not if it's live. That's a different game. But most yes. cases, if, if something leads to nothing and suddenly you go off track you can cut that part out. No one's going to be that angry. You can always get back to the original track, the original type of interview, but also don't go into an interview thinking it's going to go a very specific way because that's boring as shit. Like you better hope it goes into again, weird Dragon Ball Z conversations or weird Metacritic game conversations. That's how a lot of that stuff goes. Right. Um, Right. What's tough about like uh, cover strips, cover story trips in general with Game Informer is, you know, every month, Basically, our site rotates as we jump from game to game to game, which is an amazing gift just to have this constantly refreshing, you know, eye of Sauron from us of like, yeah, we just did Destiny 2 Forsaken. Like, last thing we did with Destiny was Rise of Iron. We put it on the cover. And so it's just so fun to be distracted by dozens of other games. And now suddenly for a month, all of Game Informer says, what's going on with Destiny 2? Let's really focus in. And when you're planning for those cover story trips, just feeling the pressure of knowing that you have to learn everything that that community wants 
yeah. what the developers have said so far. And as like a research, uh, like school geek in general, I get so into that where, you know, we did Monster Hunter World on our cover not too long ago. And just that experience of, oh my God, Monster Hunter World on the cover. Uh, it's two of us on the cover story trip. We feel out of our depth. How do we make sure we don't disappoint the Monster Hunter community? All right, let's do some research. Let's just spend a lot of time figuring out what they want, what they know, what they don't know, what the developer's willing to talk about, and they're just trying to wring as much as possible out of that. But where I was going with this initially was when you're sitting down with those developers and trying to brace for those detours or brace for something, just trying to figure out what they're passionate about is always the most fun dance you have to do. Because you sit down and you know that they have their three talking points you know they have their marketing bullet points that like all right we got to get this message out uh, at this stage in the campaign for marketing we're talking about multiplayer but just figuring out based on presentations even earlier in that day they're like ah that developer's eyes really lit up when they were talking about i don't know the shooting mechanics in this game or something yeah. that they feel personally invested in and just seeing those little glimmers and then just knowing that ah, on video hopefully that's going to be a vein we can really dive into and they'll get off track uh, and light up and have something fun to say the monster hunter world cover had to be one of the most daunting things for you like to yeah. be able to go into that situation and one avoid all the question sets that have already been asked and two, make sure like you said you're actually satisfying a community that is so invested in that and so balls deep in what monster hunter is and there's going to be minutiae that even if you are this person who enjoys studying that stuff you're just going to miss stuff like there's just 100%. stuff out there where like I'm not going to be able to ask about how these certain gathering mechanics work in this game compared to that game unless you're as obsessed with Monster Hunter as everyone else. And that expectation is almost impossible, I would assume. Oh, I, would, I would also assume. It is, yeah. Well, you're you're probably bringing the certain people who make sense for certain cover stories. You don't want to bring the person who hates JRPG stuff. Like, hey, there's a Final Fantasy 16 event. You want to go to this? You're like, I know nothing. I could not tell you what any of these spells are. None of this makes sense to me. But again, no matter what, you're 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 talking to an audience who has. There's going to be a portion who's played a thousand times more hours at this thing than you have because they're invested in it, and that's yeah. difficult. And that developer interview you talked about that aspect of it is also interesting because what I've found so far from my somewhat limited experience is some of the most interesting developer interviews are after the game is out because there's a certain weight off their shoulders and a certain amount that they can breathe and talk about something more honestly after it's already come out you don't have the the kind of the pr pressure of don't say that it's not out yet don't say that we don't know yet and i've talked to danny o'dwyer about this with him doing no clip and all these different course, sort of yeah. retrospectives in the games where he's gotten some of the most honest conversation from developers I've seen. And I think a lot of that is if you talk to them like humans, it really works out. But I think this is other aspect of once a game is in the rear view mirror and you're not worried about what your publisher is going to think, you're able to more honestly be like, here's how this happened. And here's what this looked like a year before. And Oh God, this almost went bad. But in the end it worked out when you're still in the, this might not work out section. It's harder to be honest. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And the tricky thing too, is just then, once the game's out, PR is like, well, job done. Time to move on to the next marketing campaign and the whole rollout. They've got a, a ton to do. And so then when you come knocking and say, hey, we want to talk to um, Undead Labs right now about State of Decay 2. You know, this is a random example. This didn't actually mm. happen. But there's a lot of those situations, right, where it's like, hey, can we get line up an interview for this? It's kind of like, yeah, maybe. We'll see. But they're busy with other stuff. Like they're focused in that run up. And so it's just a matter of lining that stuff up 
after release, it can be amazing, but it's trickier when you're working within the machinery of, uh, of publishers to have them interested in what there's no strategic advantage to talking about this game that came out eight months ago, even if the developers are going to be more open at this point, you know? This is why talking to indie developers in these cases is so valuable because they'll oh, just yeah. say shit. They'll just go off and they're like, we can talk about this shit. We're not worried about it. And it's <laughs> it, it can be a lot of fun. Uh, we did talk earlier about how Game Informer has grown over the years and how a lot of these people have been there for so damn long, which, again, yeah. it's awesome to see it grow over that over that time. But some of your most recent hires are, of course, people who are younger, who have maybe grown up in this environment where media is more YouTube-focused, more Twitch-focused, more streaming-focused. With, Of course, you're not the top of the, the top person doing hiring decisions and everything like that. But oh, no. in your mind, have a lot of these hires maybe be, of course, they're qualified people and they add a lot to Game Informer, but they also allow you to maybe, they're bringing this, in, this knowledge that you could never have had being in games media this long so maybe they they'll come in and say like all right here's how people consume games media on youtube on twitch and all these different services has that been helpful to bring these maybe not calling anyone they're old but younger people in who can help you show you what games media is like now and incorporate that into the traditional aspects of game informer yeah yeah it's absolutely wonderful um you know i'm always relieved when we have somebody new coming in, like Sergio Vasquez is a great example, not too long ago and he's on the show. Um, but when he came on board and just like going out and getting drinks with him and realizing that he's a fan of gaming podcasts, it's just a wave of relief for me to be like, okay, you know what you like. All right. We can, <laughs> as long as we can focus a little bit on channeling some of what you like from other podcasts on the Game Informer show, I'll be so happy. But yeah, uh, uh, Leo Vader is another great example of that where he is one of i think he's the youngest person he's the other video guy who we heard about a year ago and he's just the best uh and he has such a unique perspective because he comes from that younger school where he's mainly just pc focused and he just doesn't give a shit about mario and zelda <laughs> and any of that garbage he's just like what's good on steam what's fun that i can play with my friends and it's so nice just to have him for a you know uh just someone to bounce ideas off of about what that type of community might be interested in because it's so easy to get sucked into the vortex of everybody that works at an outlet loves the super nintendo grew up on the super nintendo of course mario is the best thing ever but it's like eh, i think for a lot a lot of people out there especially the younger people it's like i don't know i guess mario's fine what else is there i don't know why this is the thing that people are holding so near and dear to their heart when there's so many other great experiences to have out there it's still weird to me when people talk about like retro gaming and they say the Xbox 360 or they say like, <laughs> oh, I, I love I listened to or watched game coverage growing up. I loved all the influencers when I was in high school. And you're like, oh, God, like yeah. I'm not old. But if there's one thing that immediately ages me, it is that. <laughs> totally. Like, and like, yeah, we see it a lot on a replay show, which you do every week where we've been doing a lot from last generation and even seeing that wave of nostalgic nostalgic comments like this last week we did transformers war for cybertron which was 2010 i think and there's so many comments of people being like oh man i grew up with this game i love this game when i was a kid or it's like what war for cybertron i feel like that's it's a recent so game weird, in my dude. mind like it again i 
for me, it's like I have this very strong nostalgic sense for like N64, which is not old, but I thankfully played enough Nintendo and Super Nintendo when I was younger where I'm like, okay, I'm not immediately seen as person who's like Halo 3, that classic video game. Like that's <laughs> the grossest thing in my head right now. It's not their fault they're young. Well, yeah, okay. It's not their fault they're young, but still, it's so bizarre to hear stuff like that. Uh, last thing, I set out a call on Twitter for listener questions. Got oh, a yeah. bunch. And some of them we covered because the, one of the major themes was kind of this this discussion about what tools are you using or what advice would you give, which I think you've done a great job of. But let's go through these three real quick that are oh super God. quick hit weird ones, if you're okay. good with that. Love it. All right. This one is from Colin Regan, regular listener, says, what is the weirdest thing Dan Riker did in the GI office that isn't on film? Isn't on film. God, that's a good one. I, I would assume there's some stuff that is insane most of it was probably caught on film uh look dan has this reputation for being a real wild man like every time we hang out everyone's just like oh man i can't believe you can keep up with him like he's the biggest sweetest softy in the world you know he's not he's not a crazy person all the time um i don't know like when i think back it was years and years of working with dan it was just a lot of him bugging people you know pranks well, less creative than pranks. Pranks can are fun, <laughs> but it's just a lot of like you working and I have a tight deadline. I got to get this interview about Darksiders 2 up or some nonsense like that. And he'll come over and just like stand by your desk and start, you know, poking you in the back or like just messing with toys on your desk and flipping things upside down. Just little annoyances like that. So eventually you have to scream, get the hell out of here, Dan. Um, <laughs> it was a lot of those situations, less of him pulling off some fantastical stunt that just no one had a camera recording it at the time who would have thought that this many years later he now has the foremost anime podcast in all the world (laughs) oh my god i want to fucking kill myself after years (laughs) years of talking about hey no dragon ball is actually like a very fun show it's very good i think it's right and kind of wrestling it's 100 percent wrestling you would love it and just be like ah it sounds dumb Ah, balls and they go catch the balls Ah." It makes me want to scream. Uh, even like <laughs> I was screaming at him about he didn't want to watch Ghost Protocol back when that movie came out. And now he's really? just tweeting recently about like, ah, let's watch Mission Impossible 4. That's a good movie. It's like, yeah, you idiot. Jesus Christ. I've screwed up for so long. <laughs> it's such a good impersonation. Uh, this yeah. is from Bob B. Backwards. Uh, any plans for another Hanson Cork podcast, a follow up to Twilight Highlight Zone, perhaps? Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, with my coworker, Jeff Cork, we had a series. I guess two is a series technically, right? Yeah, that, I'll, I'll count it. Okay, all right. But we had kind of like a side podcast, which were super fun. And I guess it kind of gets back to that focused angle for podcast where this, I think, I don't know if we're the first. I'll say one of the first. Um, we covered like every episode of the original Twilight Zone uh, in depth and went through episode by episode. And it was super fun. And then just to get more esoteric after that, we followed it up with. I think the first podcast dedicated solely to the band AFI. Wow. Yeah, like I was, I'm a big AFI fan, and Jeff Cork had never listened to him. And so it was me walking through that band's entire discography, song by song. And I love taking those deep dives. We kind of do a similar thing on the Game Informer show with game clubs, which are very much inspired by One Up's old game clubs. Uh, you could say uh, borderline ripped off from one episode game clubs of just like breaking down a game into small chunks and walking through it and playing through it with your community. And then everybody writes in on their thoughts and it's just a big group discussion. But I love getting so specific and particular about topics 
so let's say yeah with the podcast with cork we talk about it all the time we gameinformer.com has a it's a new site um and so hosting those podcasts there are going to be a little bit stranger like i guess it'll have to be in the main feed which i didn't have to before but we definitely have plans uh of what to do and i i am a big proponent of every time we have one of those offshoot podcasts shifting the medium yeah. i think that's uh really fun and so yeah we did tv we did music and i would love to do something differently uh but we'll we'll see how it goes i'll say within the next year we'll post something I love the idea of the game club, and I also really love just the concept of when you get to introduce someone else to something you love. So, not to keep going back to Giant Bomb, but like the Metal, Metal Gear Scanlan stuff, where you know, here's someone who loves Metal Gear Solid, here's someone who's never played it. Let's experience this, and maybe, hopefully, not like I would worry that if I tried to show someone Mad Men, I would go overboard and be like, here's this cool thing that's about to happen and be like that worst person in a movie theater who's about to spoil everything. But yep. there's there's a really cool factor. It's just being like, here's this thing that's important to me. And hopefully by the end, the other person sees the value in it. So I think stuff like that with games is super cool. Oh, yeah. But like, find, hang on, but like finding that partner is the trickiest thing because it'd be so easy to turn them off. And it's such a delicate thing of just finding someone who's open and willing to talk about it, even if they don't like it, you know, because Jeff Cork could have hated AFI's first album, but instead he was curious and I think he enjoyed it. And that could Would you have had to leave so Game quick. Informer if he hated it or like 100%. somehow get him fired? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, I would just have to <laughs> put some incriminating evidence on him. I don't know exactly how I'd get him fired, but I'd have to. There's no other option. <laughs> uh, last one. This is from... Oh, man, this is from Chairface. That's an intense <laughs> Twitter name. Um, uh, what would you be doing if you didn't work at Game Informer? Interesting. I'd probably still be at some production Educational house. software? Educational software. Honestly, I would hope so. Um, but I bet it would be some production house in the Twin Cities area, just uh, focusing on editing. Like Editing is what I love more than anything else, and uh, I'm still not sick of it. And so I would hope that, you know, maybe I'd be working for like, pbs in the twin cities here or something oh, like that man. Uh, while uh, but i would imagine that i'd still have this big passion for games so i'd probably be trying to record some let's plays with my buddies on the side or something just to get that out of my system because it's it's a shame to have all this knowledge about games and not try and use it and imagine that's a lot of the audience out there uh, for this podcast as well where if you're listening to this deep of an insider of a podcast about games <laughs> you probably know a lot about games and love the games industry and you should find an outlet for that however you can yeah, so I was interviewing someone. They're like, this might be too insider info -y. I'm like, you are on the right podcast if you want to get into real nitty-gritty shit. This is literally what this podcast I is I just about. listened to that. That was your, your interview with Mike Futter. Oh, yeah, where he was worried about it. I was like, don't you worry. You you found your home <laughs> if that's what you want to start getting into. Yeah, like, we, exactly. We go really deep with some of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> last thing. Last two things. First off, I'm sure. happy you don't work at PBS. I'm happy you work at Game Informer Thank instead. you. Very sweet. Uh, real last thing. What are you working on right now at Game Informer that you can talk about? And where can people find you on social media? Oh, my gosh. Okay, real quick. Uh, social media. Uh, I share occasionally things other than Game Informer links. So check it out. It's at Yozetti, Y-O-Z-E-T-T-Y, which is an old dumb screen name i had for age of empires one when i played that online it's a, it's, a, it's a nothing story but um what i'm working on now is getting geared up for next cover story trip which will be an interesting one uh, it should be uh, you can spoil it right here that's fine <laughs> okay sure well we do have a, uh, a cover story revealing i don't know when this podcast is going up but early august 
you know, it's always like the first Tuesday of the month, I think, is normally when we launch the new cover story. So Oh, this might be the that. day before. Okay, perfect. Uh, and then this is for the cover story after that. We always have a long, you know, uh, road ahead for mapping this stuff out. Um, so getting ready for that. But then also uh, Game Informer show every week on Thursday, which is fun. Uh, trying to plan that out. Uh, and then actually we're planning for this week. We're going to record it. We have occasionally um, we do special editions of the Game Informer show. And I'm very excited about this one that we have coming up, which is I don't want to spoil it. But the wonderful thing about working at a place like Game Informer is like people know that name especially a lot of like uh, old school developers, they really focus on that name. And so if you're ever interested in a story that you feel like hasn't been told from the game industry, uh, it's not that difficult just to reach out, get the contacts, uh, and then just say, hey, would you guys ever want to talk about this incident that happened or this yeah. phenomenon in the gaming industry that happened years ago? Um, and so we have an example of one of those coming up where it's just a game that was never released uh, and... Uh, the plan is to make a big special edition podcast about dissecting just what went wrong and what happened with this high profile game. So should be fun. I love shit like that. I'm already yeah. looking forward to it. Oh, thank uh, so ben, much. thanks so much for doing this. I not again, not to make people at Game Informer feel old, but it, it is a magazine that I've been reading since I was in junior high. It's the first magazine that maybe games coverage outlet that i've actually really noticed the people who are writing it i've looked at the byline and i think you guys have done a great job of connecting with your audience in that way it's super cool to watch how much you've grown in terms of this media aspect of it and i'm happy that you've been there to help make sure that people have cameras on in the right way and doing everything correctly and uh every time you hire someone it's always like oh man i like that person i'm super happy they can now do full-time games media work so really love what you do and can't wait to see what this cover story actually is even though you won't spoil it to me we have so many planned i'd argue there's one every month but thank you so much <laughs> and i really like this podcast too like it really is informative and i hope at some point you go back and comb through your own episodes and write a book with the greatest nuggets of wisdom <laughs> from everybody because you there is a lot of wisdom contained in this podcast feed man I really appreciate it. It's none of the wisdom's coming from me. It's all from the people. That's that's the trick to podcast. Bring people who are way smarter than you, and that's really easy. It really me, is. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.